1: So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research, and I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Dr. David Wishart. He has a PhD from Yale, 1991. He's a distinguished university professor in the Departments of Biological Sciences and Computing Science at the University of Alberta. He's been there since uh, 1995, and he has active research programs in structural biology, machine learning, synthetic biology, neurodegeneration, bioinformatics, and metabolomics. So, David, thank you for coming.
2: Uh, glad to be here. Thanks very much, Rich. If you would,
1: tell me about your current research. What are you
2: working on? Oh, lots of different things, actually. The major focus of our work is, is using Uh, analytical chemistry, uh, mass spectrometry, NMR spectroscopy, um, tools to look at blood or urine or other biological fluids to help in the diagnosis and characterization of of human diseases. So we're looking for things like biomarkers, uh, but we're also looking for ways of understanding the pathogenesis or the development of these diseases. Uh, We study a whole variety of things from cancer to Alzheimer's disease.
1: Yeah, which would you prefer to go into in terms of the biomarkers? Or I guess we'll just start with the general treatment of it. And When you say biomarkers, what kinds of substances can act as reliable biomarkers? What makes a reliable biomarker?
2: So typically we're looking at um, chemicals or metabolites. Proteins can also be biomarkers. Uh, genes or mutations in genes can be biomarkers. There's probably about half a dozen different classes of biomarkers. And a lot of biomarkers are used by doctors or physicians when they're doing, you know, standard diagnostic tests. If you go to a doctor's office, they might do a blood or urine test and they'll measure things like your hemocrit. They'll measure your creatinine in urine. They'll measure certain uh, urobilinogen. And those are all biomarkers that can be used to assess things like liver function, kidney function, cholesterol levels, heart disease. So those are what the, the biomarkers that, that we tend to look for. Sugar, glucose is probably the most widely used biomarker in the world, and that's to monitor people with uh, diabetes.
1: So what makes a reliable or useful biomarker versus one that would be great, but for some reason, it's just not useful?
2: So typically, we're we're ideally wanting to have a one or two or three biomarkers. Glucose is a fantastic one because it's just a single marker. Many conditions and disorders, we usually need two or three or four. And what we're measuring are things like sensitivity and specificity, and those have sort of formal statistical definitions. But you're trying to reduce the number of false positives or the number of false negatives. So you don't want to misdiagnose people. You don't want to uh, say that they have something when they don't, or you don't want to tell people that they're just fine when in fact they, they do have a disorder. So the identification of biomarkers uh, is, is about performance and the ones that are highly sensitive and highly specific are the ones that we choose. And it could be a single marker, more often it's two or three or four that in combination give us sensitivity and specificity.
1: What kind of metrics are you looking for? You know,
2: 99% specificity or 80% sensitivity? So. Typically, um, there's a, a thing called a receiver operating characteristic curve or ROC, R-O-C curve that, that kind of measures sensitivity and specificity at the same time. And, and uh, we, we measure the area under that curve. And a lot of tests that are used and approved by the FDA or commonly used in most medical fields have an area under the curve of about 0.7. The maximum is one the minimum is 0.5 which is a random guess so a lot of uh, biomarkers today are pretty mediocre blood glucose probably has you know a sensitivity specificity of about 0.95 or something like that so it's very good but other markers like prostate specific antigen for prostate cancer may have an area under the curve of about 0.6 which is not much better than random so it's ideally we want to have you know, high sensitivity, high specificity, up around 0.9 and higher. But most of the medical tests and most of the medical biomarkers are are much less than that.
1: So what conditions in particular are you trying to develop biomarkers for or evaluate
2: the best ones? So we're trying to find really good markers that have, you know, the sensitivity and specificity of up around 0.8, 0.9. Nothing is quite perfect, but um, so we're trying to find better markers because current ones are pretty poor. And we're trying to look at markers, uh, as I say, for early early diagnosis of cancer. We're looking at lung cancer and colon cancer. But we're also looking in the areas of of things like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, uh, autism, other kinds of neurodegenerative disorders. We're also looking at biomarkers for inflammatory bowel disease and irritable bowel syndrome. Looking at markers for pregnancy and pregnancy complications before they happen. So it's, it's pretty diverse and we'll look at blood, we'll look at urine, we'll look at saliva, we'll look at cerebral spinal fluid, any biofluid that we can access, but the preference obviously is to get something that's easier, uh, urine uh, or blood.
1: So what, why, why are so many biomarkers not sensitive enough
2: or not specific enough What's the problem? So historically what people did is, is they kind of were plucking the low hanging fruit. They found the biomarkers that were easiest to measure with the instruments they had. Um, And so when a lot of biomarkers were introduced in the 50s and 60s, the instrumentation was pretty primitive and the techniques were, well, it was easier to get biomarkers approved. And so people just kind of, I think, relaxed and said, okay, this is what we've got. Uh, Technologies have changed, Um, the fields have changed. There's been tremendous efforts looking at genetic biomarkers over the last two decades. There's been more focus in looking at new protein markers Our group tends to focus more on chemical or metabolite biomarkers. So with the new technology, we're starting to find they're picking off the higher hanging fruit on the tree. And some of those are actually much better than the ones that were low hanging. So it's it's really just a consequence of the change in in the technology and our ability to measure things more more accurately at lower levels uh, and more rapidly.
1: Here's an example. So there's continuous glucose monitoring but there's not continuous insulin monitors. Why Why
2: can't that be used as a biomarker? So glucose is used as a proxy for insulin. Insulin itself is a really low abundance protein. And to be able to detect it at the very low abundance, it's possible. Um, but it takes 10, 20, 30 minutes for the, the signal to develop. With glucose, the, the reaction is almost instantaneous and glucose itself is uh, you know a million times higher in concentration than the insulin, so it's an example where you you try and use the the compound that's easy to detect or varies more uh, profoundly, even though it's it's sort of a proxy of performance of insulin. Uh, glucose is is a much more obvious, much more rapidly tested um, marker, and so that's that's why it's used but if
1: it's not as useful, let's say as insulin you got to get to insulin at some point. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius Podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to twenty seven hundred plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives in our world. Even though this podcast gets a hundred thousand plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from ten to forty nine dollars a month including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in the ability to request specific topics or guests and more visit finding genius and click support us today. Now back to the show.
2: No, I think glucose actually is more useful than insulin. So it's a case where the variation in glucose is, is generally more profound than insulin changes. And It reflects actually more important physiological consequences than than insulin itself. So it's in that case, it's it's really overall the better marker than than insulin.
1: I know a lot of people that would love to see insulin and look at the area under a curve to see, you know, for type one diabetics and dosing and everything. But do you think it's just out of reach because they just you know?
2: I think I mean you can never say never, but it, it is a case where it's a it's a very I guess, low abundance protein. and it has characteristics of it that, that make it pretty hard to detect, at least not instead sort of, a, you know, the rapid turnaround of seconds that you can get with blood glucose. It's um, tens of minutes. And then of course, because body changes in a matter of seconds, um, what you're reading um, with insulin is, is going to have a fairly long lag time. But you know, technology is always advancing, and, and there may be methods that people can come up with that that would allow more rapid detection of insulin. What about for cancer? What
1: are the biomarkers
2: that people are looking at? So historically, a lot of the biomarkers uh, have been proteins, deglycosylated proteins, of certain types, things like uh, CA125 and mucin, and these are ones that have been around for decades. Uh, more recently, people have been doing a lot of genomic sequencing of, of cancers to look for uh, foundation or founder, founder's mutations. Uh, our focus is actually looking at uh, metabolites, uh, or small molecules, uh, for several reasons. Again, small molecules are generally more abundant than proteins or genes. Likewise, uh, cancer is very much a metabolic disorder. And so some of the very first changes that happen in cancer are fundamental changes in in metabolism. There are changes in things like glucose levels, lactate levels, certain amino acids, and certain amino acid breakdown products, diacetylspermine. Those compounds elevate during cancer, and they're pretty easy to detect. And often they show up in the earliest stages of cancer.
1: Okay. Well, what biomarkers are being looked at right now for liquid biopsies and what are some of the candidates that may augment them or replace them?
2: So in the case of liquid biopsies, those are generally looking at um, um, either genes or transcripts. And those are, again, focused at, at cancer cells. They're usually more at the later stages and, and they may represent where you know cells are metastasizing and lysing and, and some of the fragments and, and genetic fragments are, are detectable. And so with the liquid biopsy, they're looking for very specific mutations in, in genes. As I say, the other approach is to look for uh, proteins through antibody assays or to look through chemicals through things like mass spectrometry or color, color metric assays. People can combine you know, a gene test with a protein test with a chemical test, and that can improve the sensitivity. Some cases, what you're looking for is early stage detection, uh, because in, mo- in most cases the cancer is curable when it's detected early. So if you can, if you can find a marker, any marker, gene, protein, chemical, uh, at the earliest stages, the, that's the better marker. Can be used for screening. Sometimes the liquid biopsies give you better markers, depending on the cancer. Sometimes the chemicals give you better markers, again, depending on the cancer. So there's no one answer, Um, and and often it's sort of a a combination of of, of markers or marker tests that you use to to give the best best results.
1: All right. And you mentioned also uh, neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. That seems to be somewhat of a focus for you. So what are some of the potential biomarkers there? I guess the condition is not very well understood. So what would you even look for? If you like this podcast, please click the link in
0: the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
2: Yeah, no, it's it is a tough one. Um, it's one that you know progresses over often many many years. Um, it, it's a case where you know there's stages where people are forgetful or there's mild cognitive impairment, and then it moves us to early stage and then mid stage and late stage Alzheimer's, and that whole progress can take about 25 years. It's also a case that um, you know clearly it's a disease of the brain. And historically, most of our work and the work of most other researchers was looking at uh, proteins and protein misfolding in, in Alzheimer's. And there's you know very clear associations with certain proteins, uh, A-beta being one, but there are other proteins like tau. Even the prion protein seems to be linked to Alzheimer's. But that seems to be a late stage effect. So rather than being the cause of Alzheimer's, it seems to be more a consequence of Alzheimer's. And I think there's been a, more, a realization, just like cancer, is that Alzheimer's is probably a metabolic disorder. And it's governed by, at some level, I mean, people call it type 3 diabetes or diabetes of the brain. So there's a clear shift in the metabolism of the brain, both in the early stages and through the mid-stages of, of Alzheimer's. But there also now seems to be an influence of uh, the gut microbiome as a person ages the gut barrier loosens up or becomes more permeable. Same with the blood-brain barrier, it also loosens up. And as a result, the chemicals that are produced, that are supposed to be kept in the gut, start leaking into the bloodstream. And those chemicals also can probably pass into the blood-brain barrier. So this is why we typically see Alzheimer's being a disease of of the elderly. There are other conditions that develop um, also through gut dysbiosis, things like Parkinson's disease seems to be associated with that. There are other conditions, potentially even autism uh, at the early stage in life when there's also different mobility or permeability of of the blood-brain barrier in the gut.
1: Why do you think that the blood-brain barrier would get more permeable over time?
2: It's just wearing down. It's um, essentially sort of oxidative damage. It's you know, it's it's proteins not performing as they usually do. It's the same way that you know we develop cataracts as we age. The blood-brain barrier is is made up of membranes and proteins, and those just wear down over time.
1: What does that mean? Just wear down? They they take different shapes. They, I
2: mean, yeah. they, they denature.
1: Um, I mean, what what's been observed? Has anyone picked at the the barrier to look at its composition over time?
2: I, I don't think people have really looked at it that closely. It, it's it's fairly poorly understood overall. I think there's a broader realization in the community that the blood-brain barrier, especially for humans, is, is both unique and important. The, it is a case of, of proteins, the pores um, that control the barrier, do suffer oxidative damage with age. Anytime a protein has been going through some oxidative damage, it can then misfold it doesn't function as well. Some of these proteins, like proteins in the eye, proteins in the blood-brain barrier, are with you for life. And the lifespan for most proteins is about 100 years. Uh, Other proteins have even shorter lifespans. But that's just simply the the chemistry of of proteins and exposures to the typical insults uh, from oxygen to um, anything else that might be in the body.
1: So what inroads are you trying to make into Alzheimer's and how?
2: So, we're interested in trying to find markers for early stage Alzheimer's, but also trying to better understand the etiology of or pathogenesis of Alzheimer's. How is it that the blood brain barrier and and what are the compounds that, that actually end up in people's brains? So, we're finding, for instance, bile acids in the brains of Alzheimer's patients, we're finding uremic toxins in the brains of Alzheimer's patients, we're finding higher levels. Of especially microbial byproducts, microbial toxins in the blood of people who are developing Alzheimer's, which tells us that there is an issue with the permeability. It's telling us there's change in their gut microflora. There's a change in the compounds that are being released in the bloodstream, which end eventually end up in the brain. These compounds change several things. They lead to inflammation. They change. Uh, redox status in the brain. And so they may also not only shift things to that, that type 3 diabetes that we see in the brain's metabolism, but that leads to the oxidative damage that may be um, messing up the A-beta proteins, the tau proteins that eventually start misfolding and, and ultimately leading to the, the damage that we see in, in Alzheimer's brains.
1: Well, if the plaques have antimicrobial peptides, it seems like they'd be mediated by microbes. So does that suggest that there's a a microbiome of the brain or what would that suggest to you?
2: No, I think that was one thing that people were intrigued with was that maybe there are microbes um, in the brain. I think people have looked really hard. Some people claim to find evidence, but I I think unless maybe someone has really serious blood brain permeability issues, there shouldn't be microbes. But you can get microbial products in the brain and so some of those proteins are you know, just very ancient response proteins, thinking that there has been some infection um, or some attack. And so either they are expressed or they're altered so that they can uh, you know, attack what, what they think is there. It may be just simply the fact that there's a, an inflammatory condition induced by these compounds that leads to this expression or change in, in proteins uh, in the brain. We don't know for sure. And I think, I mean, a lot of these things are pretty new to the field in the sense that up until even a few years ago, most people really didn't think there was any connection between Alzheimer's and the gut. And even just a few years ago, there were very few little evidence that there were chemicals in the brain coming from the gut. And now more and more, uh, they're finding a lot of compounds in the brain that shouldn't be there, but have clear influence on behavior, memory, depressive symptoms. Whole range of things, all seeming to be influenced by by gut metabolites.
1: So what changes in the gut as we age? What are your thoughts and why do different metabolites arise?
2: So um, partly as we age, our diet changes. There's also a loss of, of gut integrity. Again, things just wear down. So there's what we call more gut dysbiosis among people who are or older. The there's a shift. I mean, the microbes in our gut stay with us for a long, long time. But as we age, that shift moves things um, in usually a a negative direction. And our gut gets taken over with, I guess you'll call them bad bacteria. Most of them are sort of like clostridia or derivatives of that. Clostridia process food differently. They process compounds that we eat differently. And they start producing a lot of what we call uremic toxins. And these are indole or phenol derivatives. uh, They're guanidino compounds. They're all quite toxic. And most of the time they're kept in the gut. They come out in the feces or secreted in the urine. But when things don't work as well as they used to, uh, they start leaking into the bloodstream. And then from the blood, they get into the, the brain. They also get into other organs like um, the heart and the kidneys and the liver and and also cause damage. So they're they're sort of endogenous toxins that that, um, the body produces as it ages, and and it's partly arising from bacteria that are in the gut or from the diet that then leads to the, the bacteria that are found in the
1: gut. Have you identified some of these same compounds in younger people and healthier guts? Has anyone looked? Is it just a matter of leakage or is it that the same compounds are not even produced in, in less dysbiotic th- people?
2: So, yeah, we, we compare these two healthy, uh, healthy aging people and, and those with Alzheimer's. We can also look at even young people with, uh, say, autism and those who are healthy. So we see these compounds either in the blood or in the urine at much higher levels than, in, say, healthy people. So, you know, it, there's a clear shift in the metabolism. At some level, the body's trying to do its best to, to keep these things in the gut or away from the bloodstream, but in some cases it can't. And there's sort of two, two phases in a person's life when they're very young, when the blood brain barrier is very permeable, and when they're older, when the blood brain barrier is permeable. You know, that permeability uh, is very much, uh, can be affected by, you know, what are the chemicals in your bloodstream? If You've got healthy chemicals in the bloodstream, it's no issue. If you've got um, endotoxin compounds in the bloodstream, then that's a problem.
1: Okay. So what are some of the markers in particular, since there's so many things that you think would correlate well with Alzheimer's, or is it really early and there's a lot to look at and and screen?
2: Well, some of the things that people are finding um, right now are are things like um, bile acids, uh, different kinds of bile acids. And these are Bacterially produced bile acids or secondary bile acids. Bile acids are known to induce uh, protein misfolding in some cases and to cause inflammation. Certain bile acids also known to cause even cancer. So they're bad actors. There are some good bile acids, but the ones that we're seeing in the brain seem to be mostly the bad ones. There's a compound called indoxyl sulfate, which a lot of people are tracking, and these are other types of indole derivatives. They come from tryptophan. It's an amino acid. You get it in corn and many other things. It's in almost any food, but the body processes it, and this particular bacteria will process it into some nasty stuff that gets eventually into the bloodstream and and can pass into the brains. That can cause things like memory loss, depression. There's other ones like um, people have identified propionic acid, other uh, desaminotyrosine um, derivative that looks like tyrosine, but it's more like an organic acid. That seems to also cause or associated with Alzheimer's. Taurine, which is another amino acid, but primarily a breakdown or associated with bile acids also seems to be altered in sometimes in, in blood or we'll just see it in urine, depending on the situation. So there's, there's a range of compounds, many of them having microbial origin. And I think we are at the early stages. It's still, a lot of people are still exploring. It's it's a fairly new idea. It has a lot of people excited because this suggests a much easier way of, of combating Alzheimer's or at least uh, detecting it at the earliest stages.
1: Which compounds seem to be in very high prevalence that go very low or vice versa? Like what are some of the most dramatic changes that you've observed in the levels of these various compounds?
2: So as I said, the bile acids are quite a bit, they're elevated in the brains. Offhand, I don't know how high they they are, but usually, we can't see significant changes unless they're like two or three fold higher. So, indoxyl sulfate, uh, HPPA, HPHPA, these can be elevated um, by a factor of five to a hundred fold in some cases, depending on the biofluid that you're looking at. So, if you're looking in urine or in blood or in the brain, it depends on on the tissue. Usually it's, it's really hard to get brain tissue. You can only get it from people who've died. But, you know, with blood and urine, uh, that's easier to get. We can get them from living subjects and, and they're proxies of perhaps what the levels might be in the, in the brain. But they are generally quite a bit higher than what we see in normal, healthy
1: people. So what would you guess, you know, over the next few years, what do you think is going to be possible? And then what's, what's going to take quite a bit longer to understand
2: so I, I think, I mean, as a rule, it's it's useless to try and get biomarkers for diseases that we can do nothing about. And at some level, Alzheimer's is a disease where we can't do a whole lot about. So, you know, unfortunately, the focus right now is trying to find markers for Alzheimer's, which is sort of, you know, just giving you a, a bit of a death sentence. I, I think what we would like to yeah, have. But, but markers... it
1: could lead to, to a breakthrough in understanding. I mean, it doesn't mean that, you know, I That's don't right. know, I think you'd yeah. be able to see things and figure stuff out.
2: Yeah, that's right. No, I think that's one of the, the major f- focuses of research is that the biomarkers are giving us proxies of, of what's going on physiologically. So, you know, after the, the rampage to find biomarkers, then the next step is to sort of take a deep breath and say, what does this mean? And so, you know, a number of people are trying to associate that. Some, you know, microbiologists are trying to say that, you know, maybe we need to change her. Our gut microflora, and maybe we need to work on, on different um, probiotics that could change the microflora, that's one. Uh, there are compounds we know that can improve the integrity of uh, the gut. Butyric acid is one. Uh, propionic acid is another. Um, so those are dietary changes. Certainly increasing fiber content seems to also improve the integrity of the gut. In terms of the blood-brain barrier, there may be a few things that can help there. You know, avoiding the compounds that produce these toxins is one route. Um, and there are certain foods that are, you know, particularly rich in, say, tryptophan, or particularly rich in polyphenols. And and some of those things may be things that have to be avoided um, to to help deal with the the fact that as we age, uh, some things just don't aren't as handled handled as well. So I, I think it suggests there could be dietary approaches. There could be Drug approaches, but not necessarily targeting the A beta proteins as we traditionally have, but more targeting the things further upstream in the development of the disease. That said, I I think there's some really exciting prospects and developments that do target the proteins uh, that cause or are attributed to Alzheimer's, more from the side of of conformational uh, epitopes or vaccines to prevent. Alzheimer's A beta proteins from misfolding.
1: Well, very good, David. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go?
2: A lot of our work is is published um, either it's online, so you can find it or read about it um, in PubMed. Um, you can look up my name and locate it. We do have some, you know, material on our on our websites, the lab website, but um, usually the latest stuff is is actually on the in the literature and. Um, online in in various journals and magazines.
1: Well, very good. Well, David, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it.
2: Oh, thanks very much, Richard.
1: If you like this
0: podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.